You're listening to the Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we are talking to another massive hitter in the industry. It is Sandra Brewer, Executive Director of the Property Council of Australia. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Trent. Exciting to be here. Look, we've had Kath Hart on the show, CEO of Rewa. We've had mm. Tanya Steinbeck, CEO of UDIAWA, and now we have the third of three amazing female pillars in the industry, Sandra Brewer. Isn't it fantastic? We've got this trailblazers of the three of you leading the way for lots of people to look up to you going forward. Yeah, it is. It's a really interesting era, and I'm glad to say that Kath and Tanya are good friends of mine. I think what's notable about the industry bodies at the moment is that we are very collaborative, cooperative, working in harmony to get the best for our members. Has it always been like that? I think there's been eras where no, not so much. Bit of competition. So I'm told. I think we're talking about decades ago, and there's just a practical aspect to that, which is you know you don't want your events on the same day and. (laughs) And so we have to talk to each other and make sure we're coordinated in what we're doing for our shared membership. You've all got your own sort of niche though, don't you? And we'll talk about the point of Property Council later in in the episode because I want to learn about you personally first. But I don't think you step on each other's toes, right? Rewa's got its its own space with regards to its sales members and and a lot more grassroots, I think. UDIA is more planning and Property Council, well, I see it as more of a broad church these days. Mm. Um, I hope that that's probably correct. And we'll, and we'll talk more, but I want to talk about Sandra Brewer. You are by trade a marketer, right? Yeah. Going way back, I grew up on a dairy farm in the southwest and my big aspiration was to get to the bright lights and the big city of Perth. So I went to UWA and did a commerce degree. And at the time, I was really attracted to management and marketing, just wanted to be in the business world. I was a bit repelled from accounting. Mm. I didn't see myself as being a career accountant, but I was attracted to just commerce in general. Marketing really spoke to me because it was about how businesses best orient themselves to meet consumer needs and wants. And the businesses that do that the best, that offer the most superior customer service, develop the best products or the best services to meet people's needs are the ones that succeed. And I thought that was a really noble thing. So my first start was a marketing coordinator for Masters Dairy, the flavoured milk brand, and I introduced the costumed cows that are still being used today. You can't miss that as a marketing piece, right? That's fantastic. So were you from the dairy milk Harvey area? Is that Uh, down at Darden up? Darden up, okay. Yeah, so that was a great first job because it connected the dairy experience. Was it coincidental, or was it your background that actually allowed you to get that job, or made a mate, or something like that? It was a bit of a coincidence. So it was back in the days, really, it was a recession in Australia, making myself sound old. But to get my first job, I had to go through a real ordeal. I worked for free for nine wow. months, just different jobs, trying to build my experience, trying to get a start. And so by the time the job came up at Masters Dairy, they knew me so well from knocking on their door that they called me on a Saturday and said, look, we've got a start for you. So that was really good. And I spent five years with that dairy company 
company and went to Sydney and Melbourne. Then I ended up working for Mars Confectionery for 10 years, working on all the chocolate brands as a oh, marketing manager of M&M's and other roles. Tell me there was just this massive amount of free Mars bars hanging out all day that you just yes. samples. <laughs> Samples is the word, right? Oh, better than that. We used to go out to the factory, see the manufacturing process, which is just amazing. You need to know the product, clearly, right? Oh, you need to know the product. You're marketing. Course. so. Uh, but pallets of Maltesers and M&Ms and freshly cooked Twix. Yeah. It was just fantastic. And they're really great, sophisticated marketing organisation. A global private company with um, really impressive They're corporate values. They're a family values. company, right? Family owned still, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, it's extraordinary. So yeah. just being part of that culture was really good for building my knowledge about how businesses thrive. And my final role there was global marketing strategist for Snickers. So travelling the world, talking about brand strategy for wow. chocolate. Can I wind it back a little bit? How old were you when you made the move over east? 22. Were you packing yourself? Or was it something that you thought, oh, I need to do this. I can't wait to get out of Perth at the time. Oh, no. Like a lot of Perth people, it was like, get me out of here. Yeah. And, you know, Sydney just looked so glamorous. You know, mm. I remember Sydney Harbour thinking, oh, it's so alluring and to build my career on the East Coast. But, you know, like so many quite West Aussies. Yeah, I yeah. think so. We all end up back here, I think, because we just love the allure of the lifestyle that we have. But yeah, I wanted to build my career as fast as I could. I wanted to get as much experience as I could in the business world and working in global roles was really exciting. And just cross-functional responsibility. So managing a project team that was responsible for product development, research, manufacturing. So it wasn't just making glamorous ads, there was a real responsibility for the P&L. Would you have had the same career trajectory, do you think, if you'd found a role in Perth at that age? I don't think so, just because there aren't enough food marketing companies here or indeed manufacturing of consumer brands here. You know, there'd be a handful of senior marketing roles in Perth. And that was what I wanted to do at the time. Mm. I think when I was in my 30s, I began to be a lot more involved in politics and spent a lot of my volunteer time, personal time, getting engaged in the political process. And that sort of led me on a bit of a different path as well. Oh, I think that's a conundrum a lot of young people face is they've got ambition, but maybe they don't have the breadth of opportunities here in Perth. And you're lucky if you do, I think. And, yes. And uh, it's not probably learning about marketing that is the issue in Perth because you can market whatever you want. It's probably those opportunities of being in large businesses where you can learn to lead and you can learn to think critically and have structured thought rather than functional thought. Would that be probably a good assessment of the difference you probably achieved over there? It's definitely exposure, you know, bigger companies, bigger offices. But Perth is pretty good too because the breadth of experience that it provides to people. I think we've discovered that as we've done a campaign to attract people to the property industry in Perth, which is a hashtag why not Perth campaign. Mm. And we've interviewed some of our members and they just talk about the responsibility that they have at their age and their level in Perth is so much higher than their peers in other cities. So I think pros and cons. Well, we're talking you know, about a couple of decades ago as well, right? So things have changed a lot since you were in your 20s yes. with regards to opportunities available. 
That's right. And, you know, it's a more connected business world now. How did things move on from there? Why did you make the decision to leave this fantastic global business? It was a hard one. I was really enjoying it. Um, Got to work on some very exciting things. I've shared with so many people my claim to fame was inventing crispy M&Ms, which people think is hilarious. But it was, you know, the glamour and excitement of all of that, doing TV campaigns with Pamela Anderson and Cindy Crawford. It was all very exciting. But what's better than that is bringing up a family in Perth. And I had two sons when we moved back to Perth about 15 years ago and had a third son here as well. And just for kids to grow up with the lifestyle that we have, the housing opportunities, schooling opportunities and leisure, uh, it's really important to me. So it was family that brought you back? It was, and all of my family are West Aussies, been here for about 200 years, so yeah, (laughs) Yeah. pretty connected. Did you move back into a job or did you take a bit of time off to be a mum? Bit of both. I had part-time roles with advertising agencies in Perth and consulted to clients on brand strategy. And then I decided to run my own consulting business, which was Perceptive Marketing. And I had really good range of clients, including RAC, UWA, McDonald's, and a lot of the big property companies. So BGC and ABN Group. Well, here comes, I guess, yeah, that's where you start to Mm. build some secondhand knowledge, I guess, of the property industry at this point in time where you're you're bringing your skills and then starting to, as a marketer or as a consultant, to be frank, you learn bits about every one of your clients. Mm-hmm. You become a generalist across the board. And so that was the first opportunity you had really to start to touch on understanding the property industry, the, what, the pressure points of your clients, yeah? Well, I also had another first-hand insight of the property industry in that my husband is a builder. Uh-huh. Um, so he does large-scale extensions and renovations in Perth. And so I was very familiar with the construction process and the planning system. I understood building permits, planning permits. I understood progress payment schedules. And in helping run his business, I was really aware of um, how the construction process worked and the role of development. Well, I'm sure that's going to be a huge part of our conversation today Mm. as well, all the pressures we're, we're seeing at the moment on a client and builder level, probably those we haven't seen for a many, many years. Mm. Uh, So where does property start to really become a part of your job? The opportunity as executive director of the Property Council was presented to me as something that might suit my skills because I had been quite involved in politics. I was the chair of the campaign for Churchlands. I'd been on the state executive of the Liberal Party. And one of the drivers of my engagement in politics was my concerns around housing affordability and really as an intergenerational issue. How do young people get on the property ladder if the prices increase to the point that they're so many times a multiple of the median salary. Mm. So that's what got me engaged in politics and the reason the role was presented to me. I realised that this role brought together all of my interests. So there is a clear commerce side. We run events. We have an events team that runs over 40 events per year for our membership. It's about growing our membership. It's about communications, so media influence and creating a profile that gets attention from government and decision makers. But it's also about serious, hard-headed policy. How do we change elements of our tax planning or 
government systems to ensure that we can deliver housing affordability or make the costs of running property in businesses lower. It's quite interesting listening to what you're saying here because there's so many parallels between your story to get to the influential position you're at at the property council and also that and also those of Kath's and Tanya's. You had pretty similar upbringings actually in terms of your career when you both, a lot of focusing on policy, a lot of focusing on marketing, being able to bring those skills to your interest of property and be so effective today. I've heard for career success, you should follow your mind when it wanders. And I think that's good advice because if you're spending your personal time and you're involved in interests or issues, that gives you a hint at where your passion is. And if you can combine your profession that you've trained for with something that you're passionate about, that can be really fulfilling. And it does take a long time to work that out. I think, yes, you're right. Neither Tanya, Kath or I sat around in our 20s and said, I must be the director of an advocacy organisation because yeah. it's an unusual role. Um, Most people don't know what that is in their 20s, do they? Well, I didn't know (laughs) but now that I'm in it I get to speak to the premier the ministers I get to speak to the media I get to speak to all of our fantastic members who are producing fantastic projects all over Perth it's a very exciting role well that segues me into the next question you've been there four and a half years now you've probably got a good idea now of what your day-to-day looks like what is the day-to-day of Sandra Brewer well it's very busy packed diary meeting as many members as possible I just have a lot of coffees to be honest try and keep my ears to the ground about what's happening and affecting all of our members' businesses. We have a range of committee meetings that I'll attend, regularly visiting Dumas House, the seat of government, to meet with ministers or senior advisors to the Premier or Treasurer or any of the other ministers, regular visitor to department offices, so Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage, consulting with all sorts of people, talking to the media. Sometimes we'll get a curveball, a media inquiry. That means we have to drop everything and respond. So it's a very exciting week, Mm. Monday to Friday. no, No week would be the same. No, not really. That's one of the best parts of those sort of jobs, right, is that you're continually moving with whatever the hot topic is, wherever you can push and make a difference, wherever you can influence in the industry. And I guess that's what you paid for as as an advocacy, right? Your members pay you to help make a difference with what is important on the day. And to talk to those members, if I can confess, my early understanding of the Property Council was that it sort of looked after the big guys on the terrace that UDI had its place in planning and development and Rewa had its place in sales and mum and dads, but the, the property council really was funded by and its membership was full of the big guys who own the big skyscrapers. I understand I wasn't 100% correct there, but is that sort of the foundation of how it was started at the very least? Mm, well, back in its original form, it was BOMA, the Building Owners and Managers Association. So it was definitely emerged from large-scale building owners and commercial office towers. But as it evolved, it became the representative of the breadth of the property industry, recognising that this is a really important sector in the economy. So we've looked at the data and just realised that there's so many jobs in this industry across building, construction, management, agency, services, facilities management, and all the professional services to the industry. So the job count makes us the highest employing sector in the economy, more than mining and manufacturing combined. So it is substantial and 
the members that we have come across the breadth of property. So we have residential land developers, residential apartment developers, medium density developers. We have industrial landowners that own our warehouses and factories. We have commercial office, as you'd expect. We have retirement village operators. And across the breadth, they're all dealing with similar issues, which is the planning system, the taxation system, and how they can get a yield or return from their property assets that enables further investment. They're looking for the easiest way to do their job at the end of the day, just like all of us, aren't they? And that's the whole point of the Property Council is to have a voice where there is such a breadth of niche interests, but really trying to move within the same direction. One voice to the decision maker generally being someone within government. And by being that collective voice, we represent the interests of a lot of professionals that work in the industry. So uh, planners, builders, investors, developers. You're right, they all face similar challenges, but each of them have their own little issues that they deal with too. Well, when you think about the industry at the moment, we can talk about issues in construction. Everyone's talking Mm -hmm. about chicken and egg with regards to getting labor to do the work, but you can't house the labor to do the work. We can talk about uh, supply chain and pricing and getting the pig through the python. Then you can talk about cost of living pressures. Mm-hmm. So there's a finance side as well with regards to the cash rate. And then we talk about tax. Where do we get our buyers from if the foreign surcharge is, is going to be increased? How do we start building? I can imagine that your members are coming from you at so many different angles every day and trying to get their problems solved. How do you prioritize which one's more important mm. in the 15, 20 minute conversation or half an hour conversation you might have with someone who represents the Premier? Well, I think that comes down to strategic planning really and perhaps that's something that I've taken from my previous career which is sitting down and articulating the priorities and then setting in place strategies and actions to achieve those priorities. So each year we sit with our division council who are the leaders, the board if you like of the property council and we set the advocacy priorities for the year ahead and you touched on quite a few of them then which is worker shortages, costs of construction, the planning system. Then that shapes the work of our advocacy team. So we have policy and advocacy experts, communications people in our team, and we will commission research or campaigns that are either direct to government or in the media to get attention on those issues. Can I run through a list with you? I know this is very candid of the issues that I see to be the big ones and see if you've got some feedback for all of our listeners about where things might be or if they're a priority with the government or not. Sure. Yeah? All right. Firstly, and I think this is something that you've spoken about in public, that foreign bias surcharge. I see that as being a massive misstep by Mr. McGowan in his early days where he's probably gone, oh, we can get some money out of this one. And it's probably backfired on him because even though the rate of duty has gone up, the volume of duty is I assume it looks like it's probably gone down or staying around the same. So the government doesn't get any more money out of it, but there's way less buyers who are the ballast of off-the-plan purchases in Western Australia have been for decades, way less foreign buyers providing that foundation to get things off the ground and now we're paying for it three, four years later. Why? Because Mr. McGowan wanted to charge Chinese investors an extra few percent. What are we doing about that bit? Yeah, well, we're talking to government all the time about that one. It's quite technical. Even your expertise, Trent, on that is really good to understand the nuance of the impact that it's had both on state budget and on apartment pipelines. 
but you really have to break that down and we have to do that for the government, the politicians, if you like, the elected members, but also the Department of Treasury and explain that real opportunity cost. And we're looking at it now with historic low rental vacancy and at this point in time, we'd do anything to have rental properties available on the market. So it does feel like one of those decisions that in the fullness of time has turned out to be one that's quite damaging. And in quarter three last year was the first time we have seen no new apartment projects yes. launched. We've been talking about that on the prop. That yes. is, that's insane. That is so embarrassing. It is really concerning and Urbis Apartment Essentials have been tracking that for a long time and uh, it's quite stunning to see there's no new apartment projects launched in that quarter. But we had been shining a light on that issue for 12 months. So as far back as January 22, we were giving warnings to the government about supply pipelines. All right. So I'll ask the hard question then. You've been talking to the fellow about this for over a year. It doesn't take a rocket scientist for you to explain this for 10 minutes and his team to understand it, right? 10 minutes later, all right, we get the problem. Why has anything done about it? You can see it gets worse and worse and worse. It'd be a pretty easy one for him with billions of dollars in surplus to go, you know what? I can get a bit of a win out of this. Yeah, we'll take it off. Now I'm the good guy again. I've made a difference to the industry. Mm. Why is it so hard for him to just change it back? That's, that's one out of five things you could be doing. That's the first one off the list. What's the pushback? There's two parts to the answer. Government works slower than you think. It's just an extraordinary sector to be exposed to because when you've built a career in private business, it's all about quick, quick, quick response. If things are happening in the economy or the market, you need to act quickly. But anybody who's had any experience of working with government knows the machine of bureaucracy does move slowly. And I think the government has a preference to do other things. And we have seen good announcements. We've seen support for Keystart. We've seen announcements to support Build to Rent, a 50% land tax discount. So there is decision-making that happens within the government that considers what's politically palatable, what's aligned with their own party's values and what they think the electorate might respond to. It's hard to understand where the logic comes from, though, because the things that they have, you've mentioned them, the things that they have announced, most people would say they're probably down the lower end of the priority list of being able to make a difference to our economy. There's so many things that could be done so easily that would make huge impacts. And mm-hmm. I guess I don't understand how we're hitting our head against a brick wall with people that are making such fluent arguments to them, both directly and also through mediums like this. The next thing I would talk about, stamp duty. So there's two parts of that. Mm-hmm. One is obviously off the plan stamp duty, and we've seen some movement on that. That yes. was positive. But also, how are we still in an antiquated situation where our stamp duty free threshold, which is holding back so many young people where savings, as you prefaced earlier in the conversation, is their big issue? How are we still in a situation where our stamp duty threshold reflects that of five years ago? It either needs to be indexed Mm. and announced every six months and and put in place six months later so that we can all catch up with it, or it needs to at least be updated to where the median house price is today. Have you had conversations, I'm sure you have, with with the guys on the other side of the fence there? Stamp duty is one that everyone knows is a 
deeply inefficient tax. You know, it's it's, it's, it's up a, there with payroll tax. It certainly prevents mobility in the housing market, and that's what Australia needs. So we're supportive of any government that's willing to tackle it. I think we've been watching New South Wales as their election campaign unfolds and seeing what happens there. It'll need a federal government to come to the party because stamp duty revenue is a key one for state governments Mm. and it needs to be replaced. But a new federal government creates the opportunity to look again at the tax system. So we'd like to see a broad-based tax like a consumption tax, perhaps the GST, replace some of the stamp duty revenues to improve mobility in the housing market. That's quite structural, isn't it? So what you're saying is it's not as easy as just saying, look, Mr Premier, it's it's about time now. Let's increase the threshold by 100 grand. Uh, it's not that straightforward. He is our current treasurer and we do talk to the Premier and Treasurer about tax policy all the time. We're starting off a new year. I think it's been a difficult period for governments everywhere as they've dealt with the COVID pandemic. And even if you consider the array of changes to the planning system, the creation of the State Development Assessment Unit, the Commercial Tenancies Code of Conduct, there's been an enormous amount of policy making and response over the last two years. I think last year, Government took its breath again and is refocused on the future and will be hosting the Premier at a Property Council event on February 22 where he sets out his vision for the future. So I think, Trent, we're not too far away from having some more announcements that will benefit the property sector, particularly housing markets. So your frustration and impatience will be hopefully addressed in 2023. Oh, the amount of Slido questions he's going to get at this (laughs) is going to be fantastic to see. I reckon I'll be one of them, or at least the number of them, I think. What do you know about development contributions? I know you obviously represent some of the big land developers. Mm. And when I chat to people like Cole Dutton and Nathan Blackburn, their biggest gripe is... You, you referenced it, the planning space, mm-hmm. that, and but more specifically, the lack of consistency in development contributions, and also nearly a culture of not wanting to actually fix this issue. It seems to be getting tighter and tighter. Only on the 13th of December last year, we saw a new operational policy coming out, where now developers of five lots or more are now paying for a school's contribution mm-hmm. to for future schools. It just gets, every couple of years, there's another tax coming in and it doesn't go to us because we're operating at minimum profit lines anyway to get projects through it just gets passed on to the consumer you're absolutely right it does get passed directly on to the end consumer and i think it's a contributing factor to australia's housing affordability crisis so what we want to see is transparency and consistency and fairness in the way that new homeowners need to bear the costs for the community infrastructure that's around them. So particularly in established suburbs, some of our suburbs that were developed in the 40s, 50s and 60s in Perth, there's fantastic amenity in those suburbs. There's existing parks and playgrounds. So there really isn't a nexus between a new 
um, medium density project. You? Yes, yeah, yeah. providing for public open space yeah. because the public open space You're already it on, exists. Sandra, obviously you know about it, the, the western suburbs especially. But I know that there are planning meetings within the government across different cities where they're thinking about ways to justify increasing the scope of public open space contributions to things like apartments, and that they've been pushed onto apartment developers either mid build or holding their occupancy permit to ransom. And this is a sort of tax that would kill all profit, essentially. So clearly there's a culture there where planners in local government are being encouraged to find ways to generate more revenue for local governments or for the state government. It's interesting that you said that partway through a project, they find that they're going to be lumped with a charge for POS or on issue of an occupancy certificate. And I think that really is unconscionable, is that a developer can begin a project, take into account all of the financial risk, but then to be hit with an additional cost partway through um, really is unacceptable. And this is what I assume, this is what the big guys are hoping that Property Council and UDIA are talking about every day with the government to say this is you can't keep going like this right we can't be in a situation where we're continually being slapped with another cost another cost set out what the costs are we'll work with them and that's another thing right between every city every uh, you know city of swan will have a different development contribution to the city of canning for certain new land estates and it won't be set out anywhere near a time where they're having to buy the land five years earlier they won't know what the development contribution is for years later I think we're fortunate in that our planning minister, Rita Safiotti, really does understand the impact that you're talking about. And there's been good efforts by the state government to ensure consistency. I think the other thing that developers hate is the money is collected, which they're quite happy to contribute. Like Developers are genuinely happy to contribute to these funds if they're going to be deployed quickly and for the benefit of the community. And if we know what they are. Sure. And what's really angering, I suppose, is the apartment project's gone up 10 years down the track and, you know, the playground hasn't been built or the park isn't there. Mm. Then it's a waste of everyone's money. That's right. Have you got any insight as to what the government's going to do to fix this chicken and egg issue on the Labor side? Well, they're out there doing something now, which is running campaigns to attract workers to WA. They have a Build a Life in WA campaign and they're supporting that across Australia and internationally. That's one thing you have to do. We have to get workers here. The Department of Premier and Cabinet produced a really good piece of work explaining the cost of living in Perth and its relativity to other capital cities. And it just showed that people will have a much easier way of life, lower cost of living if they move to Perth. And the Premier's been out there promoting that. I think we've all got a responsibility to do that, to say, hey, look, move to Perth. We need you. The chicken or egg scenario, our answer... Where do they live? Well, our answer to that is... There's no alternative. You just have to get the workers here first and construction workers, ideally, first cab off the rank because they will build the housing stock. And I always talk about how Perth was developed as a city. In the 50s and 60s, our population grew very quickly with Italian and Greek migrants. And what's the first thing they did when they got here? They built housing stock and Mm. we still see it all over our suburbs. And that's terrific. And we just need another era like that of high migration, plenty of construction workers and carpenters to come and build a life in WA. The outcome of all these issues is that we're in a chronic undersupply situation. Now, we're normally undersupplied in Perth in some way over, over history. Sometimes we've been oversupplied, but generally 
supply lags demand. You don't build until there's demand, right? So there's always mm-hmm. a bit of a time lag there. But now we're in a situation both on the sales and the rental space where there's a real problem. Most people would say there's, an, there's a real problem now. And it's not like one side's doing poorly, the apartment building side mm-hmm. is doing poorly, but the land side is doing really well. Both are struggling. We're selling 25 to 40 lots a week in land, which is, which is historical lows per capita. It's never been so low per capita. And then on apartments, as you said, we haven't got anything off the ground in five months, six months. Speaking to the big guys that obviously talk to you every day, are they optimistic at the very least that we're going to start seeing some of this come out of the ground in 2023? Well, I think what it needs is a catalyst change. And that's what we've been saying to the government and presenting them with ideas that will really shift the dial here. It's a really difficult set of circumstances that we're dealing with. So the access to workers, the cost of construction and materials has just rapidly escalated in the last couple of years. The cost of finance, you know, interest rates mean the cost of borrowing money to develop are higher than well, they doubled, have been. Really? Exactly. They're doubled in a year ago. And there's great uncertainty about where they might go. So all of those are pointing to the fact that it's going to be really tricky for anyone to get beyond those risks. So now is the time for government to bring policy ideas in to the market, which maybe haven't been considered before, that might not have been necessary in times past, but are going to be essential now to provide housing supply. Well, I've brought up to you my sort of top four or five. <laughs> what are yours? What are your top three? If you could list one, two and three as to if you had an hour with Mr. McGowan right now and he would grant you three wishes... <laughs> what wow. would be? Yes. <laughs> yeah, imagine that. I can't imagine getting a full hour of yeah. his time, but some of the ideas that we've pitched, uh, really it's about improving our planning system so supply can meet demand easily. Quicker. Yeah, so yeah. we do see a lot of barriers in the way. Just the time that it takes to get planning approvals, the array of consultations that need to happen with government departments, the role of local governments and their approvals by local councillors. Looking at all of that again and saying, is there any part where we can say, that's just not adding value, let's remove that part of the process to try and decrease the friction from supply to demand. So we've provided so many good ideas in major thought pieces. Planning to Deliver is a document that really brought together all of the expertise of our membership and recommended really constructive changes to our planning system. What have they done with it? No, I think we've seen really good traction with the Planning Minister, Rita Safiotti, and she's considered some of those ideas. Indeed, the State Development Assessment Unit was an idea that really came out of our work. So we have some good opportunities and I think there'll be more in 2023. I should also I mentioned we have local governments who are part of our membership so they're similar to us they're committed to making sure that Perth has the housing it needs and that we work as a really effective productive city because that's in everyone's interest. The second thing on the list would be looking at some of the charges for government agencies that are in a project feasibility so the obvious ones are water, sewerage, Uh electricity charges yeah we're calling it the headworks costs so really to get a site ready there's a lot of outlay 
by developers and investors mm. to be able to fund all of those headworks. Now, remembering the way the development cycle works, you don't receive money in the bank from your customers until the project is at the very end. So you need to debt finance the whole thing. So can government perhaps help with funding some of the headworks, perhaps either providing grants or low interest loans to be able to remove that carrying cost And then we're quite certain that that will lead to some feasibilities being viable and proceeding in the near future. Some feedback from my perspective on some of our projects, we've got a handful of couple of hectare infill land subdivisions going on. I would posit to you, whilst we're live here, that 25 to 50% of our cost to develop that land is actually just contributions. Mm. It's a huge part of it, right? Obviously, you've got your retaining walls, you've got roads to put down, you've got services, but a massive percent is just giving money away to government organisations and you don't see anything for it, to be frank. Not directly, at least. So, yeah, that is one of the major components that has increased the cost of land over the last 20 years because Mm -hmm. it has gone through the roof. You know, land costs... If you think about the start of the century, land costs were at least half of what they were now. Mm. I think that's what's happened is successive governments and different layers of government has seen property as an ideal tax target. Data that we have demonstrates that the property sector is the second most highest taxed industry across our economy and second only to gambling. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you so know... Ahead of mining and oil and gas. Uh, so all the other sectors of the industry, yeah, property oh, wow. um, versus mining and manufacturing. and First one, fix the planning side. Second one, a headworks fund to help us developers actually get this off the ground in the first place. What would a third one be? I think it would be stimulating different types of residential asset classes, and that would be build to rent and student housing, student accommodation. So there's actually great opportunity for Perth to develop large scale projects that provide homes for people who might be just coming to work in Perth for a couple of years. They might be in the oil and gas industry. They plan to be here for four years. They don't really want a a rental in the private market, and they don't really want to buy a home either. But if they could live in a build-to-rent apartment, which provides all the wraparound concierge services and treats them like a a customer, they'd probably go for that. So that really suits Perth. Student accommodation just makes a great deal of sense when we're trying to grow our international students. It's a really important service part of the economy. It diversifies us from just mining and resources, and that would make a big difference. And also, both of those asset classes would take the pressure off the private rental market. Well, of course they would, especially at a higher density close to the city. You think Mm. about the student accommodation, we're trying to get a university off the ground in the middle of the city. I don't know of any student accommodation through Northbridge, for example. That would be a fantastic location to get young people in there supporting the cafes and restaurants, working at the cafes and restaurants, and then walking across the road to university every day. That would be perfect. So you think build trend is going to be a a long-term thing? It's coming and it's staying in Perth at some point? It's more a question for Australia, really, which is 
It's an emerging asset class. Perth had Australia's first build-to-rent project. Is that the Sentinel Sentinel's one? project at Subiaco. There's a lot of investment and intention going into Sydney and Melbourne in particular. Brisbane. Um, it's is, where the money is, right? It's where the big players are, your Len Leases, your Mervax and all that. They're spending the money there. The big global investors certainly go for the big cities and that's just a, a low-risk strategy for them. So Perth needs to be competitive and we're grateful now to have a competitive land tax discount, which will support projects. But we are also talking to the incoming federal government, Jim Chalmers, the federal treasurer, about some Commonwealth taxes that really affect the feasibility of build-to-rent projects. Withholding tax rates, GST, and we need to really consider that because I think those sites in the city, you're right, they tick so many boxes. And with commercial office, you know, a little bit of a query these days around working from home and what that will mean for long-term commercial office demand. Build to Rent is a similar asset class in the continuity and consistency of yield that it provides. As you said, it probably counts to be called BOMA. Yes. Right? So it was, it was offices on the, on the terrace. Can you provide a bit of an update as to how things are going on the terrace? Mm. Office space, is it on the up? Is it ever going to get back to where it was? Do we need it to get back to where it was? Can we convert all that into residential apartments? What's going on with the owners there? <laughs> it's actually going pretty good. So commercial office is very aligned with the success of the broader economy. And because our economy is thriving, travelling along very well, growing resources companies, growing professional services firms, that is what underpins demand for office space. So we're seeing good results in terms of people attending the office, which is different to leased space. That's pretty strong too. We're the best in Australia. 80% occupancy of office was reached in December and that was a culmination of a lot of effort by a lot of stakeholders, state government and City of Perth alongside the Property Council to make sure we could encourage and attract people to work from their office. So that probably is a high watermark because we know that flexible work is here to stay. Mm. But it's definitely been good to see St George's Terrace and William Street and the malls are quite busy. That's good news, right? It's nice. I think Perth people like to buck the trend. They like to be (laughs) there. They like to be the black sheep. They like to be on the other side of the conversation. And when it comes to property in Australia at the moment, it's nice, as I was saying last week to Brendan, it's, it's nice to be in the spotlight right now as that's that city that's finally not only doing well but probably the only one that's doing well in so many sectors it's always good to be counter-cyclical uh, we like to think we're we are, our think. own country <laughs> over here and yes i think there is some positive sentiment finally after a few difficult years finally before you go the last thing i wanted to talk about because i've seen this plastered all over my linkedin over the last couple of weeks are the committees you guys have got right mm. so i've seen a lot of my colleagues announcing that they've been selected on the residential committee or an outlook committee these sort of things can you explain to us the role of these committees maybe some name drops of who's on them because they're telling everyone uh, and get people (laughs) excited about what you guys are doing and how that helps obviously form the policies that you're advocating for we're led by a division council which is like our board, and underneath that there's 10 committees. So they're generally sector-oriented, so commercial property, retail and hotels, residential planning. Some are for particular groups, so we have a diversity and inclusion committee. We have a future directions committee for young people. So they really are the heart of our work. They're our eyes and ears. They tell us what's happening in the market. They talk about the barriers that they're facing, some of the opportunities 
opportunities they see. They give us policy ideas for our events and our programs. They're pretty big hitters. A lot of the guys that are on there, give, I assume they're volunteering their time. Yeah. They're pretty influential people who've done some pretty cool things in Perth. Yeah, what's been amazing is that the enthusiasm for our committees has grown. We've had an 18% increase in nominations for our committees for the next two-year term. They're led by our Deputy Executive Director, Emily Young, who's a real energetic powerhouse. She's a jet, as I said to you. She is a jet, and the committees are highly effective. And I think the advocacy wins that we've enjoyed over the last couple of years have attracted people who say, wow, committees really are effective Mm. if you can get all of those bright minds around the table they come up with good ideas and government listens to those experts probably because they're for the first time in a while there's probably some pretty big issues that people there's probably more people feeling more passionate about wanting to fix right yeah it's it's getting critical in a lot of these spaces now so uh, even myself i look and go well maybe next year i'll try and get on one of these committees because i'd like to make a difference for the first time in a while, there's some things here that I feel like compelled that we need to fix. We need to be talking louder and louder to the government about these things going forward. And you know, the reality is we're probably going to be with this government, whether you like it or not, for many years to come. So it's advocacy organisations like the Property Council that the stronger they get, the more likely we're going to get some cut through, right? Yes. I sat at our residential committee last week and just really had to pinch myself at the expertise that we have around the table. So we have leading architects, planners, property lawyers, building and construction experts, valuers, just every single profession and expertise that's and needed around spots, the table. Right? These Absolutely. are the managing directors of, of businesses. These oh, aren't yeah. sort of grads trying to get some experience these are the heavy hitters oh yeah so the expertise in the room is amazing we love to listen to them we love to work with them to shape our advocacy agenda and it gives us a great thrill when we achieve a good outcome for our members all right one last question if you can give me a word or a couple of words or a sentence about what you think the theme of 2023 in the property sector will be or should be what would it be i don't think it's going to come off sounding like a really good slogan trent which is probably not a good reflection on my marketing days, (laughs) but it would be about facilitating the sector to thrive. It really can thrive at the moment. There's just so much demand, so much opportunity to be fulfilled, but we have to facilitate that. We've got to make some changes Mm. that enable some of the barriers to get out of the way, some of the red tape to be removed, some of the costs to be diminished, and then we really will see a thriving property sector. I couldn't have said it better myself. I 100% agree with you, and I hope that the work that you guys are doing and some of your counterparts can actually make a difference to get this government to make some of those probably three or four decisions that would make huge differences to the outcome of where Perth is at three or four years from now. Sandra Brewer, thank you so much for coming in. This has to be one of the best interviews we've done in 219 episodes, and I'm sure we'll get that feedback from our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!